Hey, what's happening, y'all? Not safe for walks. So what had happened was, whenever you hear what had happened was from a black man, you know, about to hear some excuses. <laughs> what had happened was... Like, record, record scratch. Freeze frame. Yep. Might want to know how my podcast got here. We had my brother Aqua Walters uh, here on the show. We talked about starting an independent party. And what happened was like the audio just got scratchy and weird. I don't even remember what happened because I didn't hear it uh, all truth. It wasn't real. It wasn't up to our usual quality standards. It was very bad. It's extremely not listenable. If you're a fan of our show, you know we have very low quality standards. It was too low for us. That means it was way too <laughs> The shit was way too low. We were like, Listen, all right, we got to re- We uh, do our best, okay? We're a bunch of amateurs, and we're figuring it out as we go along. But we are also on episode 100 at this point. Like, well, This isn't no. episode 100 yet. This is well, like no. 98, 99. We'll get there. Yeah, what I'm saying is like we're we're coming up on it. It's there. right there. Like we are we are figuring it out. We're getting better every time. Anyway, so technically this is the second time. <laughs> Quality assurance regions. I thought, yo, let's kick it with Aqua again. Uh and let's let's make sure that everybody who's went on to this dude and the uh his party all get it right. They're on code, crystal clear audio. So Aqua, how you doing? Uh how you living right now in the, the COVID era, the Black Lives Matter era, surviving 2020. What's up, man? Surviving and surviving, bro. Um I'm doing great. I found out Beethoven was black today. It's it's going uh, everything is everything is amazing. Yo, that might be like a, a Jamaican versus a Southern Black American thing because I had like some woke aunties before I even knew who Beethoven was. They would be like, did you know Beethoven was a Black man and they erased his contributions to classical music? Did you ever hear the story talking about the Sphinx? The Sphinx was Black and uh, Napoleon right. came through there and Napoleon was so jealous of the Black man. He cut off the nose of the Sphinx. You ever, did you ever hear that story growing up? I know why Napoleon be like this. But, um... <laughs> But, um, you know, like I was raised by a Rastafarian, a Jamaican Rastafarian, right? Hey, don't get woken on that, bro. Hey, exactly. Like we try, <laughs> yo, down here in Georgia, we trying to learn from y'all. Are we trying to do what y'all doing? So actually for the listeners uh, who are hearing about you for the first time, can you talk a little bit about your background and um, your, your organizing background and just how you was raised? Give people a perspective of what your politics are. That would be very cool. Um, so my name is Aqua Walters. Um, I am, as you can tell from my accent, I am from New York, um, <laughs> originally uh, for, from Jamaica, but I'm, I'm what's considered um, in Jamaica and, and in the United States um, a socialist. Some people, some people might consider me a little bit, a little bit social democratic, uh, but for the most part, I believe in government. I believe in small corporations. Um, those are essentially the the things that we we strive towards. Well, it, the people that that follow pretty much social democratic beliefs is what I'd like to think is what we stand for. Hell yeah! And like, so having uh, you know been raised at least someone in Jamaica, spent time in Jamaica, you you have like a slightly different perspective on politics from somebody who, you know, has just spent their whole life in America. Can you talk a little bit about like Jamaican politics and sort of like Jamaican progressive politics in particular and like sort of the history people might not know there? Yeah, like so, so Jamaica is interesting in that we were defined, our politics were defined by the Cold War era, right? Because pre-Cold War, we were still a colony of 
like the United Kingdom, right? So, um, so all of these English-speaking countries that you visit, that you might see in the Caribbean, ironically, every single country in this hemisphere, in, in my region, in the Caribbean, is a colony of another country. It is weird to think about now that I'm talking about it. All the English-speaking countries are colonies of um, England or the United Kingdom. You know, the Dutch, the Spanish, the French. Um, all of those countries um, are colonies. Supposed um, colonialism, you know, we're coming up on the Cold War. And the guy, well, one of the guys that founded Jamaica as a nation was, was like really tight with Fidel Castro. As a matter of fact, Jamaica is one of the countries that Fidel Castro or rather the Castro regime, as the United States would like you, would rather, would prefer you to, to call it, up to build hospitals, one of the largest hospitals in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, in Montego Bay. And they helped to build the Jose Marti um, High School, which is in, ironically, um, a town called Spanish Town. Um, and our politics was really formed around the idea of um, a social democracy where we have a strong social safety net. Um, you know, most of the most of the, the infrastructure was is public and there's a role for private enterprise in the country where the government fell short. Like that was the that was the social contract as we understood it um, for decades until we started string into, into corporatism a little heavier because we got into tourism. And what do you know, as soon as corporatists took over, um, or as soon as most of the, the GDP of the country started um, depending on tourism, started seeing way more, let's say, privatization of like infrastructure in Jamaica. So like, that's the kind of thing that informs my politics, um, where I understand, understand why a standing rock is important. I understand why, why a flint is an injustice that, can't, that we can't um, afford to, to entertain for, for very much longer. You know, like these are, the, these are the events that are eerily similar to things that have happened in the Caribbean over the last decade, over the last couple of decades. So I think it's really like I think a lot about the fact that um, with Jamaica or Puerto Rico or like any of these colonies in the Caribbean, the UN claims that like colonization has ended and like, you know, that everybody complies with these acts. But there's these investigations that have been done into like, are these still colonies? And like the UN has had an ongoing investigation, I know, into Puerto Rico. And I think it's pretty similar amount of time into Jamaica for like five decades to see if if Puerto Rico uh, meets the decolonization standards or not. How have they not figured this shit out after five decades, Aqua? Uh <laughs> so, there's, so I'll take you back. Remember I told you that my politics is informed by the actions of the Cold War era by the United States um, and, and a lot of other countries and leaders in the Caribbean. I'll tell you, you, you know what the Monroe Doctrine is, right? Yeah, but you should probably uh, give a little detail for the audience. Okay, so the Monroe Doctrine goes a little something like this. Everything that is within, let's say, a four-hour flight north and south of, of the U.S. borders is the U.S.'s backyard. It's considered the backyard of the United States. So you might wonder why the U.S. government gives so much money to a lot of South American countries and Caribbean countries because it's a remnant of... Monroe Doctrine. Like, if you remember what, if, well, remember, but like, Panama Canal was essentially Theodore Roosevelt's, like, that was his acknowledgement of the Monroe Doctrine, in that the United States can do whatever it wants in the region, and there ain't shit anybody can do about, nobody can do about it. 
I mean, basically, it was just a power grab against the the Europeans, and it was sort of framed as like a Social doctrine security, of liberation of some kind, right? Yeah, exactly. But right, it, right. but it's yeah, it, it just it just changed the hands of power. It didn't really seem to actually like change the material conditions of people's lives in like a meaningful way, or like you know really actually give them fair representation or or anything that you know you might expect from like the way it's kind of presented a lot of times. I think. Yeah, and it's the weirdest thing, right? Like we're still we're still living in an era um, where the Monroe Doctrine is now like insidiously latent within the politics, but it's still very much there. Like we see continued coups against Venezuela, uh, coup attempts against Venezuela. We see continued uh, marginal marginalization of the peoples of Cuba, where there needs to be none, as far as I'm concerned, because normalizing relationships relations with Cuba will disinc will disincentivize. Um, continued communism as we know it which which i thought the capital the capitalists like but okay there are all these ooh, and even um what happened with evo morales um in bolivia like right there continues to be these incidents where we see an attempt to change people that are change people to change regimes um from the united states and basically rubber stamped by the united nations and other powers and other world powers you know so the monroe doctrine it applies to a lot of what happens um, in U.S. foreign policy. And I, I invite you to think really, really hard about it. And we hear the next coup attempt in T minus two months. Yeah, I'm I mean, I'm glad that you bring up Bolivia. Like, I mean, we are now it's been like six months since Evo Morales was moved, removed from office under, in my opinion, and the opinion of everyone who works on this show, completely unjust, unreasonable, and undemocratic terms. And Janine Enyes has still not held an election, has still not been clear about when an election would be held, will be held. Uh, you know, originally the, they promised, oh, we'll have elections again right away. And of course, we knew that that would not happen. And it has not happened. Um, and, you know, like when people, you know, I just want to know where's the outrage from all the people who wanted Avo out of office because him serving another term was so corrupt. Where's all the outrage now? You know, it's ridiculous to even pretend like there's there's a, you know, a reality to this stuff. And it's not just a completely manipulative sort of system. Ah, I just get really frustrated thinking about Bolivia. I can't. And that comes up. I'm just I'm just going to get upset because it's just like it's so ridiculous. The number of people who just came out of the woodwork and are supposedly, quote unquote, good, liberal, progressive, whatever. I mean, Elizabeth Warren was on my least favorite podcast, who I won't even name right now because fuck those guys. And she's saying we got to do this stuff. We got to get rid of, you know, uh, Morales. We have to get rid of Maduro in Venezuela and just talking like the same talk as John fucking Bolton. Yo, fucking low key, spinning. low key. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, I've never like rocked with her. I don't fuck with her. I I've never been angry at her. I think she's just a person that wants to be president. And if people know me, I have very low expectations for politicians. So if a politician does something that is against the people, I go, well, I don't think politicians generally are for the people. It's, a it's only a handful that are. And being for the people means putting yourself at risk, like your job, not, not even your life. But I don't feel like Elizabeth Warren would risk a job promotion to stand up for the people. I don't hold her to that. That standard because i feel like she is what she is she's a petite bourgeois lib yeah, yeah. but i mean 
but I don't like that's just what she is. So I don't even get upset at it. I'm just like, okay, what use can I make of this situation? But this shit about South America uh, and Bolivia got me fucking mad. Like that got me madder than any of her other takes because I don't feel like that even cost her anything. It doesn't cost you anything to shut up. It doesn't cost you anything to not say anything. But between that and when this shit popped off in Iran, she was just instantly like, oh, the general, he's a bad guy. Oh, it's good to get rid of him, but not in that way. Like when it comes to foreign policy, these people who are supposed to be like on our team, they really expose that they are on the side of international capital in a big way, in a huge way. I'm not even sure they realize that's what they're doing sometimes. Like, I think some of these people really are true believers, which is so just disappointing. You know, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so disappointing that I think they really do believe it, that we have this kind of, like, moral edict to police the entire world. And, I mean, and I almost think it's like a generational thing. Like, not that people our age aren't warmongering, because absolutely there are plenty of people yeah. like that who are, like, millennials and younger. But, like, the just there's this weird sort of, like, connection they have to the idea of a righteous war because their parents were, like, in World War Two. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, it's just they're, they're doing this, like, second-generation hero worship thing of, like, militarism. Yeah. And it's I think they believe it. And that's just sad and frustrating. Let's look at what the education system in America looks like. Um, like, what perpetuates this, this mentality amongst the people who serve. Because remember, remember, there's a saying that goes something to the effect of the politicians you have are the politicians that you deserve. Like, they are a reflection of your society. So there must be something somewhere along the line of a child's development within the United States that teaches that every war that the United States engages in is moral and just. That there is an inherent misogyny and sexism in the way that wages, healthcare, infrastructure is, is, and other resources are distributed through the country. Like there has, there, like this comes from somewhere. Like Elizabeth Warren isn't an enigma. She is representative of the nation. And like, that's important to think about when we're thinking about ways of removing people like her from office and potentially moving forward. Yeah. Especially like when you talk about the educational aspect, I think like that's like that hits home really hard just in yeah. terms of like where where a lot of these problems lie. Like you say, when you when you're in school, when you're just a kid fucking, you know, as a kid, you just kind of accept it. Like in general, most of the shit that adults tell you is true, you know, like or especially yeah, right. if it comes out of a book. Right. Like, yeah, like, right. you know, kids don't like, you know, if you, when you're in third grade, mo most third graders are not looking at their history text going, hmm, I think I, I want I, I want to see some more primary sources. I think there's some, you know, some pieces of the puzzle being left out here and, you know, being super critical because they're fucking third graders. Like, <laughs> yo, Aqua, how old are you, man? How old are you? Right now, the government says I'm yeah. 30. No, 29. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So like all of us were at an age where that right wing perspective, at least here in America, uh, was just like so predominant. Uh, and we just kind of expect politicians to behave in a certain way. But like we are all grading on a curve because if you think about it, like and I think this is why like younger generations are so mad because all of us like this is the, this Leia's not here. Ren's not here. So it's like the old folks show right now because all of us are 30 plus. And we all grew up in an environment where that kind of 
wrongdoing is built into the system. And we've all kind of internalized on a certain level, like, hey, we can't do everything we want to do. We can't, especially just because our generation was politically kind of powerless. So we're like, hey, we can't get everything we want. So we got to just try to scrape it out where we can. But everybody knows it's wrong to fucking kill people that are civilians and live overseas, man. I feel like everybody should know that shit. They know it in their chest that they don't actualize the shit. I think that's why they get so defensive about it. You know, on some visceral level, they realize they're killing people's babies. Yeah, they know, like everybody that's older generation than us, man, they know they wrong deep down. There's nobody that will, unless you're John Bolton, you will not argue with a straight face. Oh, yeah, this American life is worth 10,000 Iraqi lives or this is worth 10,000 Iranian lives or whatever like that. Uh, And I feel like that is so I'll just share a really a real fucking brutal thought that came through on Twitter. Uh, somebody on Twitter posted the reason that progressives uh, like liberals uh, hate the left wing is the same reason fucking Buffalo Bill hated them women in Silence of the Lambs. It's because they want to kill us and wear our skin and pretend to be us. That shit hit me hard, man. Like they do not want to grapple with the moral implications of their foreign policy. I don't know a way out of that shit. And the younger you are, the more freaked out you are because the morals are obvious, man. Are they though? Like, are they? Because like American exceptionalism, exceptionalism is known by almost every educated person on the face of the planet. I can't tell you what the Russian or the Chinese or the the French um, nationalism looks like. All these other countries, their nationalism is based on surviving the United States. Like, if you look at Chinese nationalism, they got, I don't want to use like a, because uh, I don't want someone, you're using a violent patriarchal metaphor, whatever. I'll just use one for the sake of clarity. They got gangbanged by the world powers for a hundred years. So that's embedded deeply into the Chinese psyche, that they want their own economic power. They want their own trading power. They want their own military power so that they cannot be re-traumatized again. And if you look at Russia, well, what are the defining moments in Russian history? Probably fucking Stalingrad and like so many of their their own men and women dying at the hands of the Nazis. So they have a fear of outsiders because of some shit that they went through. And if you can name literally any country that has hostility towards the United States, not saying that it's all 100% justified because international affairs are complicated, But if you look at the root of it, like they're worried about some shit that the United States did to them and that they don't want to like re-emulate or have happen again. We're sowing distrust through propaganda constantly. Like when you talk about like our relationship with Russia, there's been studies shown that have proven that like every decade, the perception of what happened in World War II has changed to favor the idea that America fucking did everything. And Russia, yeah, I get, you know, what they got, you know, they did some stuff. Yeah, let, let's be clear. This is not flag waving. This is just real shit. Russia defeated Hitler. Not this, the yeah, this has nothing to do he with any, any this feelings. This is not patriotism, nationalism. No, no, no. This is just facts. Right. The United States made incredible sacrifices to defeat Hitler. We're not, we're not fucking pretending that shit ain't happened. D-Day ain't happened and all that other shit. Right. We put a lot on the table. And the United States turned the tide of the war. But in terms of the blood sacrifice, in terms of blood spilt, to defeat the Nazis. That was the Soviet Union and not us. Also, who was holding the tide while we were standing around with our thumbs up our fucking asses trying to decide if it was really bad enough to go over there and beat up the Nazis? Because up until like, you know, we basically admired them. If you go like look at who was in Congress and the Senate at that time, especially like fuck the president, go look at who was in Congress 
back then and what Yo. they said about Hitler. And it's they're like, oh, Hitler, ooh, so sexy. A lot like, of <laughs> that was that was partially because Hitler was a very skilled propagandist. I don't know if all Americans would have rocked with Hitler if they knew the full extent of what he was doing. Hitler was a very skilled talker. What are you talking about? Letters. What, what are you talking, talking about, about, Brandon? They're rocking with 45 right now. Like, what do you mean? That, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if all of them knew the full, the full measure of what he was planning to do. Because, like, supporting Germany was mainstream in America. Like, extremely mainstream. Like, in the sense that a lot of people rock with Trump in 2016. And those people do not necessarily rock with him now. I don't know if that's like... I just think people were not fully about the shit. They just saw like, oh, he sounds good. And a lot of white people do not know any better. And they're very easily fooled. I just want to go back to my point, because my point was, like, if that, yeah. if that was your perception of America, that, like, they fucking just erode confidence in everyone else while do it, just bolstering, yeah. like, bragging about themselves and, like, lying, uh, would you like us? Would you be like, oh, that's fucking great. We love no. that. Um, it, it's, when we talk about, like, cultural appropriation like america is the cultural appropriator period like yeah. we we fucking take the accomplishments of other peoples in other countries and people that we fucking destroyed or defeated or just lied about and we say it's ours and so then they hate us because like we're we're just lying about this entire history that revolves around nothing but great white men and that's well, not yeah. reality we've built up an entire empire to specifically one demographics narcissism and yeah it is every bit as malignant as that you know it's just at a cultural level we're all fucking enablers and everybody has narcissism but that narcissism is especially bad i don't think anybody here on this show particularly rocks with obama like that however i will give him some credit in a way he did try to move the ball on internationalism and he took a lot of hits for like yeah i'll talk to iran i'll talk to cuba that shit should have been basic it shouldn't have even been a controversial issue, but it was controversial at the time that he was like, yeah, uh, if you don't speak to someone, the alternative is to go to war with them. So yeah, we should do basic diplomacy. That was the fucking foreign policy consensus like 20 years ago, but now... Well, yeah, but in the United States, they literally just put like handguns in with your baby bag when you take your kid home from the hospital. Like, Yeah, man. The United States is a weird place diplomatically. We love killing people here. It's like a fucking blood sport. I mean, there are a lot of people that you talk to them, and even if they're like reasonable in other aspects, like if you talk to them about things like self-defense and stuff, they will start to talk about killing other people as this sort of like God-given Yo. right when you're in certain situations. Like, Aqua, mm, damn, do you feel like white, well, the right wing, like a lot of their ideology is built around ideal circumstances that they can murder brown looking people. Because that's that shit scares the shit out of me. These people that are like, I'm pro Second Amendment and they have fantasies. Like, I feel like that's more than anything else. All right. Let me let me let me offer some context around what I'm eventually going to say. So I want you to think about conservatism as the default for humanity. Like liberal like liberalism and leftism is an evolved way of thinking about how we distribute resources right because like we didn't 
like Greece or uh, Mesopotamia or even even the Mongols didn't, didn't start their societies on the idea that each person has an individual worth and proceeds of their labor should go to them, right? Or rather, the products of their labor should go to them. Like, like no society in, in history started like that. So, so conservatism is the default, right? When we think about the way that America, even the way that America was, was, was conceived, it was very conservative in its framing. Like, you know, black people being worth one third, white people. Um, landowners only being able to vote, men not being able to vote. All of those, believe it or not, are rather conservative ideals. So I, I think of leftism as an experiment in rethinking default, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, like you say, there's kind of a, you know, uh, conservatism is this sort of, like you say, it's this default fallback position. If Basically, if you ask people to um, sort of talk about or justify some position that they don't really know that much about and don't have like a really like solid opinion right. about, they will always end up eventually just falling into a conservative take. At least in America, you right. know, I'm not trying to speak for the whole world, but here right. in America, they will always end up falling into a conservative take because like that's what was programmed to us. as like the default in television terms. Conservatism is the walking dead. It's like caveman survival. Like it's there's a horde coming after us. Like if we were in a zombie situation. Like a lot of us will be like, okay, we got to become conservatives. We've got to only trust people in our family and our immediate friends. We've got to be suspicious of outsiders. We got to build walls. We got to spend all our money on guns. Like we got to, there's a horde coming after us. And that is the conservative mindset. Don't trust the new niggas. Exactly. Don't trust. It's almost like it's this coping strategy that like at one point in human history was genuinely adaptive, right? right? But then it's like, they can't let it go. They can't accept that things are better than they used to be. Right. So like liberals are, this is not my favorite science fiction franchise, but if you want an insight into the left wing mind, Star Trek, like it's, hey, we've all got massive problems that we've all got to face together. Let's build some starships. Let's fucking go. Let's get over this small shit. Let's face the unknown and let's build resources that allow all of us to live in peace and harmony. And everybody is not ready for that. I don't want to feel like, I don't want to go into all like the 1960s hippie type shit, but I do really feel like the, the conservative people are not like their viewpoint has evil in result, but their core like mental outlook is just fear. Like they're just right. afraid to do the shit that we're out here trying to do. Well, and I think that comes from a lack of imagination. You know, it's why they're yeah. so fucking unfunny and all of their best jokes are just jokes that they stole from us five years ago. Like, correct. they are a fundamentally unimaginative group of people and everything has to be in extremely concrete terms for them. So, Rachel, like you're coming at this from, a, from an American perspective. And I understand that. I try to understand that conservatism in Jamaica in the Caribbean, like conservatism exists outside of the sphere of, of white people for me, because like I'm coming from a place where the country, you know, that I call home um, outside of the United States is run by black people. I am, I've only ever been taught by black people. I've only ever seen black people in power where, where I'm from. 
And best believe that all of these people, a lot of these people are conservatives. Like we still do, even in Jamaica, we still don't have, um, we still don't have abortion laws. People are still using um, all kinds of, of ill-advised methods to, to abort fetuses. Ooh, and we still have a law against, we still have a buggery law on the books. And what buggery is, it's a very English word. What it means is one man having sex with another man in the fights. And it is illegal here in Jamaica. And again, I'm, I'm talking about a, a nation run by black people, right? Um, so conservatism, again, th that's why I don't think of conservatism as just a white thing. If we can decouple conservatism from it being a white thing. Right. I think, I think we can, we can kind of, you know, bring more fullness to the conversation. And if you'll, if you'll indulge me in a genuine, like, earnest white person question, in what ways are their motivations different? So, like, I'm talking about the sort of exactly. broader lack of imagination. Yeah, because niggas act primitive, too. Are, are the motivations different for, like, how they end up being very regressive Ooh. when it comes to, like, female autonomy and, like, abortion rights and homosexuality and LGBT issues and stuff like that? Is it, like, where are they coming from that makes them feel that way? Colonialism. Colonialism and a need to uphold traditions of quote-unquote old work that's where it comes from yeah. in at least the jamaican context i don't dare speak for for any other caribbean country but yeah. that's where it comes from so like it's something that happened to them as right. part of colonialism it's reminiscent is remnant it's remnants of slavery man well i mean i think there's a lot of situations and this applies to you know uh communities of people of color but also applies to like any uh disadvantaged community uh, i think there's a lot of situations right. where uh the sort of people at the top put a little power on the table and say some of you can have this we'll keep the system moving and so like a lot of people are just willing to kind of like fall into these patterns even if they come from a marginalized background when that power is sort of just presented before them and it's all it's just there for the taking well i would just talk for like the american black people you're talking about two different strains of thought right there because kennedy what you're talking about is bougie black people they go to a good college and then it's like they are part of the professional managerial class and it's like that's a different thing when we talk about like right wing tendencies, and if you're white, you're listening to this shit, and you're like, damn, I, we were responsible for black people acting wild. Not that, no, the black people that have this perspective, ultimately on the cosmic scale, they are responsible for their own actions. But I'm trying to provide y'all context so that if you see a black person and they're wild and you do not get like overly defensive and and mad at them right so we have like a lot of black people that have adopted these right-wing viewpoints because they're just trying to survive like they're trying to get through a system of white supremacy um a system where they're going to run into the cops a system where they're not going to believe in social situations like any of those situations so they've got to like discipline their kids in ways that seem harsh because they're not doing it to be mean they're like i'm trying to teach you how to survive this system and that might rely on me being an asshole to you that might remind on me eating your ass but i'm trying to keep you alive that's not good like because that's shitty behavior that goes on to other shitty behavior and like that's a whole separate debate but that's like what's at the root that's where that comes from right it's it's literally just trying not to get murdered basically i mean yes which, like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, like, sometimes it's like, oh, police violence. It's also smaller shit, like, what am I naming my kid? If my kid is named Khadijah, 
that's going to have a harder time for her to get a job. Or I'd name her Julia, right? And that's conversations, like, if you know any black person, that's conversations they have about naming their baby. Like, do we give them a white name or a black name? All of y'all know that shit, uh, just as a fact, if you are black and listen to this. So it's just a complicated situation. And that conservative versus left wing, can we survive with what we have versus can we aspire to something better? That exists in every culture and every race. That's not unique to any subculture or group. Hey, man. My name is Akua Ajay Tafari Walters. I, I Let him know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade my name for John, Jennifer, or uh, <laughs> right. No disrespect to the Johns right, and Jennifer right. out there. No, listen, right, I'm a right. Rachel. I get it. Like, I have one of those names that in 15 years is going to be the new Karen. I have to accept that shit now. Like, no, you have an, you have an <laughs> ethnic name. I think it's going to be different for if your name is Rachel or Esther. That's just going to be like you're Jewish. That's like a slightly different, <laughs> you know. That's what I'm saying, though. That's what I'm saying is, like, every single, like, Jewish-American princess who became a mother between the years of 1985 and 1995 named their daughter Rachel, and I just happened to be one of them. So, like, there it is. Nailed it. So let's talk about your project. Let's talk about you are building a local-based third party in America. Can you talk about how your strategy is very different from the strategy of, like, the Green Party? which is doing their own thing. You have something that I think is a longer term project. And I'm sometimes skeptical of long term projects because politics changes so often. But I also think that your project is a more sustainable project over time. So tell us about what it is and how it works. So the the National Progressive Party is born out of a push um, by the Vermont Progressive Party um, and other progressive parties around the country that wanted to essentially employ a 50-state strategy. All of these parties, like the, like the Progressive Party of Louisiana, the Progressive Party of Washington State, the, the Vermont Progressive Party, all these state parties wanted to grow the movement beyond what was currently being offered. But the Greens, the Democrats, you know, the, the Republicans, and the main idea being we want to focus on local elections in the United States. Why we think, and when we think about local elections, most people's immediate reaction to that would be, why would you want to ever care about, you know, local elections? Like the president is where it's at. Congress is where it's at. Sure, Congress gets to sign the fancy um, federal laws, but there's such a thing as, and you might hear this a lot on Fox News, states' rights. When states' rights, um, when it's convenient, rather, um, than just states' rights. But find, um, especially within a pandemic um, or any emergency, that your local officials actually hold way more power than than you initially thought. So your local officials have the power to, you know, democratize the transportation system and, you know, figure out other ways of funding that. So your transportation infrastructure, they have ways of, if they wanted to, every single local municipality could create equivalent of what the the post office or the post office financial services um, idea that's been floating around um, since the 60s. Every single local municipality could essentially build um, build a local bank that serves um, local communities, local communities and the unbanked if they wanted. To. That's how much power local representatives have. And and if we want to be more poignant about the moment that we're in, you can think about um, you know the the district attorneys prosecutor in Miss, Miss, Missouri, right? 
George Floyd die? Uh, Minnesota. That is Minnesota. Yeah. Right, because that's Keith Ellison, Minnesota, right. If you want to think about the power of local politics, um, think about the fact that the prosecutor in Minnesota didn't want to prosecute um, Derek Chauvin. Those offices are all elected offices, from the sheriff, from the sheriff to the police chief, um, to the district attorney, to the prosecutor, to the judge, um, who will who will eventually hand uh, hand out the sentence to Derek Chauvin. All of those offices are actually elected. If you think about that traffic ticket that you pick up um, over the Fourth of July weekend when you're traveling to see family, all of those police officers are essentially beholden to elected officials that you get a direct say in. Right? And, and that, that's essentially the bedrock of, of the electoral politics that the National Progressive Party and, I, I dare say, the people that believe in a National Progressive Party hold. So when you talk about like the plans for the National Progressive Party uh, in the episode that unfortunately was lost, you really talked about like this kind of like you put it really well, like this dog catcher to governor strategy of like sort of challenging lots of races and like, you know, working from this really local level up. Can you talk a little bit about like the importance of like jumping in these local races, especially like where like you just have these forever incumbents that have been serving and things like that and just like rooting things out from the ground up in that way and like people's communities and like just like how how do you actually make that happen, you know? How do you get how do you get people like at like running all these races? It's something I think that we hear a lot from like progressive third party groups like we need to run people in for every like election. But how do you actually kind of accomplish that and like get the shit done? And then like, what does that translate into? I have a theory that I'm pushing um, that I, I continue. I continuously push for reasons that will soon become clear. Um, the theory is that you have to rethink the way that we run campaigns where Campaigns now are essentially a use once and throw and dispose um, machinery. So we're talking about campaign managers. We're talking about, you know, volunteers, like all of the all of this infrastructure, all of these people, for want of a better word, are just used once. And once the campaign is concluded, there's all that energy go. Like we can we can see that with like what happened with um, Bernie 2020, Bernie all the time, like all of these, all of this energy, the excitement that he that he generates and, and every politician generates dissipates. So one of the one of the main ideas that we're toying around with at this point is how do we have how do we run perpetual campaigns and why and why you'd want to do that it might sound antithetical but you'd want to run a perpetual campaign or what i like to call a coalition campaign it, it serves a couple of purposes on every way how every um state um is is set up to run elections is it's basically distributed into districts, right? Um, it's basically not distributed, it's gerrymandered to hell as districts. And each district has a specific amount of towns and all of those towns have specific offices and judges that served on each district court. So if you think about mayors that need to be elected, the sheriffs that need to run, the district attorneys that need to run, the judges, like, you know, not just your typical run-of-the-mill politician, but all of these other offices that need to be filled, your comptroller, etc. 
some people call them, um, instead of calling them mayors, they have like a, call them a joint select board. I'm your city council, right? Your school board, your superintendent, like all of these offices. If I'm thinking about is each district would have essentially an office at Every candidate that's running in that cycle would basically share one donate button and they'd share all of the resources that they bring in. So when somebody donates to that politician, they're not just donating to that campaign, they're donating to all of the campaigns that sit in that district. Right? That keeps the lights on. Everybody, everybody's able to share the, the marketing, all of the, the, the backend infrastructure that goes into running these campaigns. Because one of the biggest problems that we find um, and I'm sure Seema might have Seema Hernandez might have gone into this um, when she was when she was a guest. Like just how much money it takes and how much resources it takes um, to 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 run a, a successful campaign. Oh, you know she you know she did as a fact, bro. You know she did because like for people who do not know, she ran for Texas Senate, not state Senate, but United States Senate from Texas, and that's one of the most expensive states in the country. There are multiple major media areas that are in that state and Sema like organized it like the poor people's campaign she did extremely street level shit she could barely afford to like travel from place to place let alone do like huge fundraise and also her she has a big online presence but she was not like begging for money in the way that a lot of these people who are online fundraising dynamos did so it's a totally different situation for her I, I mean, we've talked to a lot of people, honestly, that, you know, were struggling to sort of make make it all work out as they ran for office. You know, people just like giving up a lot, just like living very like challenging lifestyles on the road a lot, not really having like a lot of safety or security or comfort in any form and just like you know, barely having like a, you know, a few dollars to their own name because everything's just in the campaign. And like, you know, I think that that's that's very true. And I think when you talk about also just like the way that sort of this energy arises around individual people and then goes away, I think that a lot of people are kind of seeing that need that you're describing for like something, some things to exist to sort of like uphold and push candidates through that that are you know waiting they're waiting and like able to run outside of that single candidacy so that there's a little less stress put on the individual legit and the coalition campaign idea that i'm discussing remember this is an all-year-round office the thing that that most people forget is when you're going up for office for the first time you're more than likely going to lose so AOC is an uh, is an enigma because she won the very first time that she went up for office, right? So you need to be perpetually training these candidates. Like they have to become professional candidates, and one election cycle just doesn't cut it. We see Matt Gates every single day in in Congress making an ass of himself, and this is I think this was his first time running, first or second time running, and he still isn't as polished a politician as the as Republicans can present. My point being. Having these resources available and these offices available for candidates to be able to continuously campaign, even in the down season when nobody's thinking about the next election, where they're able to, where they can use the, those periods to gather data on constituents, is super valuable. And it makes the entrant, if a candidate bows out, it makes the next candidate that takes their place. It makes their induction into that area a lot smoother. It helps to push the momentum of the progressive movement much faster if we can start getting our local progressives elected into offices where we actually get to write the card.
Yeah, man. Aqua Walters, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Uh, I mean, or coming for the first time, depending on how you want to look at it. It's a pleasure to talk with you always. And uh, we, do you want to like give some plugs? Like, Yeah, talk about what you're doing, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, I'm trying to escape poverty. But outside of that... Aren't we all? We are literally all... God, that's know. a mood. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but but uh, with all seriousness, um, you know, right now the National Progressive Party is still a going concern. But you all can reach me um, on my Twitter at um, Walters Akua. That's W A L T E R S A K U A. Twitter. Um, and I'd go ahead and say that the National Progressive Party website, which is nationalprogressiveparty.org, is a great place to go and get more information about what's happening over there i i'd be remiss if i didn't mention the you know there are other great movements out there like the movement for for uh people's party um the united left movement that's reason that, that that's recently you know coming into its own there are all of these great progressive movements that are are trying to push in a direction of electoral politics that we haven't seen before um, more localized less national um, and definitely check those check those other organizations out as well hell yeah uh aqua thank you so much again it's always a pleasure as i said and you know we're gonna definitely have you on again oh, because shit. like it's every time every time like that we we sit down and talk with you about stuff like we always just like it ends up being a really good, interesting, and I hope for the people listening, you know, sort of informative in some way conversation. And uh, yeah. I, for those of you listening, thank you so much for tuning in. We are Not Safe for Wonks. Uh, I'm Kennedy Cooper. Brandon Buchanan. Rachel's here too. Rachel, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I'm Rachel. Excuse me. I, yeah, I'm appropriating you. You were on mute, so I wasn't sure whether you I were. know, right? <laughs> like, just assumed I wandered off. No, I'm still here. I've been listening. Right. Sometimes right, cool. I just listen. Yeah, I don't want to perpetuate patriarchy or anything. <laughs> I'm just trying to Listen, cover No, you, you know, right, sometimes okay. I step out of the way and let, you know, black people describe their own experiences. <laughs> All right. Oh, damn. <laughs> she turbo woke you now. I win. I, yeah, I, I lose. All right. I woke you, you into a corner. Anyway, well, I'm Rachel. All right. Yeah. Um, and we have been not safe for Wongs. Our guest was Aqua Walters. Aqua, say bye-bye to the lovely folks out there. Remember, guys. Beethoven was black. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Bye-bye.